This is the Monday, August 21st, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Those pilgrim women who, who braved the boat, they cook, 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 cook the turkey, but they, they could not vote. Even Betsy Ross, who showed the flag, was left behind that first election day. What a shame, sisters! Then Susan B., Anthony, yeah. and Julia Howe, Lucretia, Lucretia Ma, and they showed us how they carried signs and marched in lines until at long last the law was passed. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine heads back 100 years to a time when surging numbers of women were demanding the right to vote in the United States. Our guest on the picket line with the suffragists is Deborah Copps. She's written more than 20 nonfiction books for children and young adults, including her latest, which is for ages 11 to 18. The book is Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights, From the Vote to the Equal Rights Amendment. Unlike, say, a Susan B. Anthony, the name Alice Paul may not spark instant recognition and appreciation in the minds of today's Americans. But Alice Paul's tale of bravery and dedication, her willingness to take on policemen, presidents, and even those in her own movement, made her a person worth remembering. Alice Paul was born equal in 1885, since her family were Quakers who embraced total equality of the sexes. Of course, the Gilded Age world, outside Alice's small South Jersey town, had very different ideas about how Gibson girls should be seen and not heard. No matter, Alice Paul was determined to be heard, and she liked a good fight. Despite her small size, it wasn't a good idea to bet against her when she dropped the gloves. As her father said when asked what he'd do if the family ran into difficulties, I bank on Alice. Well, millions of women around the world banked on her too, They looked to her for leadership in the fight to win the ballot in all 50 states, and even after 1920, when they achieved that right. In fact, she was active all the way through the 1970s when the Equal Rights Amendment was being debated. Okay, now that we've picked up our picket sign and staked out our spot in front of Woodrow Wilson's White House, let's meet Deborah Copps as she digs into the history of Alice Paul and the fight for women's rights. Since 
I'm joined on the line by Deborah Copps, author of Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights, From the Vote to the Equal Rights Amendment. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dean. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. For one thing, Alice Paul is one of our New Jersey treasures, so that's always somebody I love to reach back into history and read a book about and be able to share. You have many such books under your belt, and that made me think, here's an author with no shortage of ideas, and I wondered what made you decide, okay, I'm going to tackle Alice Paul's story next and share it with my young readers. Well, you know, I think often we writers write books because we want to know more. And I had written a book on women suffrage leaders a long time ago for younger kids, middle grade. And this book is young adult. And I was intrigued when I first encountered her because that's when I learned that she wrote the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923. And as a child of the 60s and 70s myself, I was very much shaped by the what's called the second wave, the big women's movement of the late 60s and and early 70s really made a feminist out of me. But I thought, and I think most of my contemporaries did, that someone wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, which was warmly embraced by that women's movement in the 60s. And when I found out that this suffrage leader wrote it in 1923, I just had to learn more about her. And then I felt like I really wanted to share that information with young adults something when you find a figure in history that has a long life and kind of becomes an oracle and somebody who starts so early in life and you can kind of follow them through and say, wow, there, she's still around in the 70s. I mean, she could be watching a show like Alice or Maud. It, <laughs> seems, it seems amazing, right? Well, she was really lucky, I think, that she, having written the Equal Rights Amendment in 23 and championed it for decades and, you know, from the 30s, really until the early 60s, you know, when Betty Friedan wrote her feminist mystique and the women's movement started taking shape again, a second wave, she saw a resurgence of interest and she had really kept the fire going for decades, as I said. And, you know, for some of that time, you know, in the 50s, for example, when, you know, a lot of the sitcom moms never took their aprons off, there was just very little interest in equal rights. I was amazed to learn that Dwight D. Eisenhower, president, supported it, even though most men and women were just not interested. But she kept at it. And so I was really happy that she lived long enough to see it warmly embraced and also to see laws begin to change. Even though that amendment never was ratified, it had a great impact, I think, on women's history. She was somebody who was very sincere. And that makes me think of one of my questions here, where today we look at activism and community organizing and all of these terms that we have that we really didn't have back then. Everybody was just kind of fighting for freedom. This is saying in the, you know, the early teens, a hundred years ago, today, it's kind of a well-worn path to become an activist. People will Mm -hmm. go on TV and they're just an advocate. That's how they're chironed on the screen or they're environmentalist or they're a defender of family values or whatever it is. These are all kind of just a line there. And you might be up against somebody that has many degrees and that's done actual things. A big political one is always strategists. It could be somebody Mm -hmm. who never ran a campaign for anything, but they maybe interned at a White House or on a campaign. And okay, we can put that up there. And that's sort of your resume. 
This was not an end in and of itself for Alice Paul, and in Alice Paul and the fight for women's rights, it's clear she wanted to achieve a goal to improve her life and the lives of her fellow women. Her example wasn't one of just, we're just going to keep complaining about the next thing. We're going to keep those donor dollars coming in for special interests, and this happens in all sorts of endeavors, all sorts of people really maybe don't want to solve the problem you wonder sometimes, Mm -hmm. and I wonder what you think that example has to set for your high school-aged, more or less, readers here about balancing their life and activism? Oh, well, actually, Dina, she actually, some people felt that, in fact, her life was not terribly balanced, that she was a great activist and an incredible organizer and a genius in a lot of ways at getting press coverage, for example, of the National Women's Party demonstrations, first for... Um, Well, mainly when they were fighting for the ballot. But she herself, you know, one person tried to interview her and really a journalist get a sense of, well, who is this Alice Paul? This is when she was fighting for women's suffrage. And he was so frustrated, he finally decided there is no Alice Paul. There is women's suffrage. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) She, in fact, had a laser focus. So her life was in some ways not very balanced. It was all she did almost all the time. And she was a bit frustrated, you know, when the second wave, beginning with the National Organization for Women, you know, now women fought for equality, but they also began fighting for things that that were women's issues like abortion rights. And Alice Paul did not like mixing it up. She just thought Hmm. they should stick with equal rights. So she really had kind of a laser-like focus always. The movie Reds, Maureen Stapleton said that Emma Goldman, she just didn't have any joy about her. And she certainly did. The dancing, the party says, well, what are we fighting for if it's not for that? But to me, I guess after Alice Paul lives this long life of activism, and she maybe knows she'll never get to reap the fruits of it necessarily. She won't be able to really have some of the career that maybe she wanted. She won't have a family, this kind of thing. And that that was the goal. The goal was to achieve things. It wasn't necessarily just, well, she picked a topic that, you know, could have just been any topic. She really seemed to care about it having practical applications. Sure. She Well, she believed wholeheartedly in it, and she felt that to achieve equality, you know, that the economic handle was important. So when the Civil Rights Bill of, of 1964 was passing through Congress, and she heard about Title VII, she heard that there would be Title VII, which would make it illegal to discriminate against someone in the workplace for an employer on the basis of race or religion, she thought, oh, come on, let's add sex. You know, then you can't discriminate against women in the workplace. And she really, her whole life, felt that economic opportunity was so important for women. And so she lobbied very effectively. She she was an old woman by then in her late 70s, but she got two women who were in the district of a very powerful congressman, Howard Smith, to contact him and ask him to put sex into Title VII. And he did. And Martha Griffiths, a very powerful feminist congresswoman, went to bat for it too. And it really gave women um, the handle to economic opportunity, the sex amendment sexy title. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about the cover of Alice Paul and the fight for women's rights, because I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but of course we do. That's why we put so much effort Uh in publishing it to picking the right photo. And that photograph is one you can kind of stare at for a a bit and almost have a conversation with her. Alice Paul's looking directly at the reader. She's defiant and determined, but 
It also seems to be challenging, as if she's asking the young readers in this case what mm-hmm. they're going to do to advance equality, what they're going to do to make a positive difference in the world. I wonder if there's a story behind choosing that picture. And when you see it, what's Alice Paul saying to you now that you've completed the book? Hmm. Well, it is a striking photo. And she, um, you know, as somebody who's a bit camera shy, I really admire the way she (laughs) stares down the camera. And, you know, one thing she said at one point in her life was that she was afraid of nobody. And I think that that was true and really admirable. You know, I think what she has to teach activists is to not give up. I mean, you know, (laughs) she persisted for 68 years. She fought for women's rights her entire adult life. There's a quote at the beginning of the book, I never saw a day when I stopped working for women's rights. And that was just so true of her. She was so determined. And I think that is something to teach activists and something I think about. I think certainly Hillary Clinton took a page from her book. I guess I couldn't help but think of Alice Paul on election night. In fact, I was wearing the colors of the Women's Party purple, white, and gold. (laughs) And when Hillary Clinton was nominated, I was so touched that she wore white because suffragists in Alice Paul's militant National Women's Party and also in the more moderate party, you know, the acronym is NASA, um, they wore white and then they would wear a sash over it. I mean, you could see the white if it was in the summer. I mean, in the winter, uh, like the jacket photo, you don't see what she's wearing underneath her lovely fur coat. But that was a hat tip really. And I think an expression of gratitude on Hillary Clinton's part. It's nice to be able to see the line sort of being connected. We talk about this standing on shoulders of people. Right. And sometimes people don't know even, and it is good if somebody in the current era will reach back to that. And you say, especially as somebody who's writing history there, you say, well, okay, somebody recognizes it. Somebody recognizes her and she does live this life. And so it's somebody worth remembering, somebody worth meeting. She does leave a record too. I wanted to quote from the school library journal. They say you, quote, made excellent use of Paul's letters and journals to recreate her life for a high school audience, unquote. I wanted to know how you met that challenge, not only of sifting through so much source material, but you have to tailor it here to readers in a pretty wide age group. When you think about the youngest readers, it's 11, and then you compare that to 18, never mind 14 and 15 year old, and you're talking about Mm -hmm. girls and boys, there's a lot of differences. That's a lot of your life from 11 to 18. So how did you confront that source material and whittle it down here so it would be just right? Well, I read this very long oral history that Amelia Fry, who is no longer with us, did a long time ago in the 70s. And that was just really valuable because Alice Paul, although she was a really intensely private person, did have a lot to say for herself, especially about women's rights issues. And it was just great to have those quotes there because we're in the digital age. I could search it easily. And that was wonderful because it was online. And then the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe and Harvard has her papers and they just had wonderful stuff. And and I, you know, one of my favorite sources actually that really is tailored to the audience for this book, it's a bit on the frivolous side, but really fun. It was her journal from her freshman year at Swarthmore College. And, you know, if you're looking for the serious activist Alice Paul, you don't find it. You find a college freshman who 
is enjoying being away from her family home, uh, even though she's still surrounded by Quakers. She was a Quaker, and Quakers founded Swarthmore College, so she was still in the Quaker fold, but not living with her family. And she just had a wonderful time. You know, she was into sports. She was mischievous. She and her friend Rena made fudge on a gaslight lamp, which they certainly were not supposed to do, (laughs) and then lowered it through a window so that they could pick up what the guys were giving them in exchange for the fudge, which was sausage and crackers. So it was nice to encounter the 17-year-old Alice Paul. You do hunger for that when you read a yeah. book like this, like you said about that journalist. She, he wanted to yes. you know, give me something that's you, you know, that you love fudge or something, some personal thing. It really, it really fleshes it out. That's right. And the other source that, well, they had a couple of other sources that were really wonderful to find. One was her letters to her mother when she was in London and, you know, around the UK. At the time, she was 24 and getting involved in militant suffrage work. It's where she learned about the value, really, the effectiveness of getting media attention by being a bit outrageous, you know, by not behaving like a quiet, well-behaved woman, but really advocating for what you want, demanding it. And she wrote letters to her mom about what she was doing, and, and they would do things. Sometimes they were, you know, they were really over the line in terms of nonviolent or violent. In the United States, her National Women's Party was completely nonviolent. But in the UK, the group that she worked with, the WSPU, would do things like throw rocks through a window. The police were also a bit violent, and maybe that had something to do with it. The Pankhursts were the leaders of the WSPU, and she would write her mother hair-raising letters. Her father was dead by then. And, you know, you can imagine what it was like for her mother, (laughs) who was just dying, I think, for her daughter to please come home, including descriptions of her time in jail. She was jailed three times. And one of those times, she finally was force-fed, as she was in the United States, and described the whole horrible, painful procedure. The third source thing that was very cool to find was Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, which came out in the early 60s and was called by a writer for The New Yorker a book bomb because it really made such a big wave. Alice Paul saw that book. She had her own copy, and she wrote in the margins. And reading her comments on Betty Friedan's book, which I was quite familiar with, was really a treat. It's almost as if you have kind of the director's commentary, I guess, we'd relate to today in a movie. I suppose that's the kind of comment she had. Yes, and some of it seemed still to be an issue, you know, in modern times. I think there was some comment by Betty Friedan about young women and girls sometimes being embarrassed that they were intelligent and that guys may not find them attractive. You know, and Alice Paul wrote something in the margin like, so true, even today. And, <laughs> but she also said something about how even some young guys were embarrassed about their intelligence and they were more eager to show their masculinity by going off to war. You talked about London and also about the police here and about them not embracing this nonviolent resistance over there. There's one scene that you have that's kind of amusing anyway when you know things turn out okay when you read the book. That was Emmeline Pankhurst, and she was the head of this WSPU, Women's Social and Political Union. And she had some elderly suffragists with her, and she was afraid. She knew they would all get arrested, and she was afraid that those women would get roughed up. And so she wanted to get arrested before, before the um, more violent demonstrations began, when more women would join them in the street. And so 
basically she slapped a policeman so that he gently so that he would arrest them, which he did. <laughs> you know, Dean, one of the challenges of this book, I think perhaps reading it, <laughs> talking about it, and certainly writing it, was that she lived a long time. So I tried to cover her entire adult life, and that's decades and decades of women's history. That was the real challenge. Yeah, how long did she live again? You know, she died at, at age 92. She was born in 1885 and died in 1977. I mean, really, think of all the changes. Airplane flight, two world wars, a Great Depression, right. television, so many presidents in there. Right. Grover Cleveland all the way up through Jimmy Carter. She died at age 92, and it was 1977. Betty Ford called her on her 92nd birthday to wish her a happy birthday. The National Organization for Women decided to make it a special day, sort of to fundraise for themselves and also celebrate Alice Paul. And so Betty Ford called her on her birthday. Long, long life there. It's just incredible that she lived that long, right? Right. She was born in a time mm -hmm. of horse and buggies, and she's seeing jet travel and men walk on the moon and you know, all these incredible things. That's just, right. that's just amazing to have a life like that. And for you, really to distill it here down into a book that's, you know, it's not a heavy read because it's for younger readers, and right. yet I enjoyed it, and I'm right. certainly not 18. That's in the rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> right. I talked a little bit there with you about policemen. President Woodrow Wilson resists suffrage as long as he can, and maybe forever it occurred to me, considering what we know now about the debilitating strokes that crippled him in secret. It was really his wife that was running things there for the last little while of his presidency right. while he recovers from that. I always hold that against him, as I think the historical right. record should. And I wondered if you'd give us some bullet points on that. What will readers hear about Alice Paul and the fight for women's rights as she's challenging not just these policemen on the beat, not just picketing peacefully here, but actually the commander in chief during the Great War when he really shows no hesitation in cracking down on the right to protest and peaceful right. dissent? She, she decided that she found a weak point, which was that Woodrow Wilson, you know, in 1917, he sent soldiers to fight. We joined the war in 1917 in World War One, And so he, he sent soldiers over to the battlefields of Europe to basically, he said, make the world safe for democracy. And Alice Paul immediately caught the irony in that. How can you champion democracy abroad when you don't have real democracy at home? You know, if half the population can't vote, is that a democracy? And that's what she harped on. And so the banners that the National Women's Party members held up in front of the White House just became more and more pointed and provocative because as people became more distracted by the war, Alice Paul was not going to go home and knit socks for soldiers. She didn't see anything wrong with doing that, but she didn't think that the country should forget about women having the vote. And so in order to, to keep people's minds on that issue, in addition to the war, they became more provocative. But, you know, she had an interesting thing to say about Woodrow Wilson much later after he had died. Uh, she said basically she found him very pre predictable. I think he found her unpredictable. He did not know what she was going to do next. You know, first there were banners. Later she burned his speeches. But she said she always knew how he would react, and she found him a sort of comfortable adversary. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's some of those pictures or something in front of the White House and some of the anecdotes. I mean, she really made herself a nuisance. That was part well, of her strategy. That's right. and, he... and, you know, I think <laughs> one congressman really understood their dynamic very well and what the National Women's Party was about in some ways. He said to a National Women's Party member who was lobbying Congress, and this Congress was about to pack it up and go home. So she was kind of discouraged. And he said to her, you know, you are like sand in the eyes. And basically, we have to get the sand out of our eyes. And to get rid of you, we are going to pass this amendment way before we would have without you. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) We're speaking with Deborah Copps, author of Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights, From the Vote to the Equal Rights Amendment. You can learn more about today's guest and Alice Paul at DebraCops.com or by following our guest at DebraCops on Twitter. The first name is D-E-B-O-R-A-H and Cops is K-O-P-S. Abby McGaney Nolan wrote in the Washington Post review of the book, quote, Cops doesn't ignore the divisions, rivalries, and missteps of the suffrage struggle and subsequent legislative battles. But Paul emerges as a devoted and ingenious fighter for justice, and an inspiring role model in her devoted and ingenious fight for justice, unquote. Deborah, let's focus on that praise for your not avoiding the disagreements mm-hmm. within the movement. On March 7th, International Women's Day, you tweeted from your Deborah Cops account uh-huh. there on Twitter, Alice made sure women's rights were included in the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, much like the legislation you were just talking about. To do so, though, she had to overcome opposition from, of all people, Eleanor Roosevelt. What was the source of the First Lady's opposition to including that in well, that declaration? Well, you know, I'm not positive. Um, and I talked to one historian about it who thought that Eleanor Roosevelt may have just wanted to avoid women's rights because it could be divisive, depending on, you know, what representatives from other countries we were talking to. You know, it might have been that she just didn't want to deal with that issue because it would make too much trouble. But they did have a fundamental disagreement, which is that Eleanor Roosevelt and many, many women supported protective legislation, meaning laws that protected women, but also, according to some feminists, maybe baby them a bit. In other words, if you tell a mom, you know, you can't work more than eight hours a day or your employer can't make you, that makes it easier to get home to your family. On the other hand, if you want a managerial position and sometimes oh, you want to be in Congress, <laughs> and that means, you know, sometimes you do work more than eight hours. So you don't want that limitation. And so you can't have both. That is, if you have equal rights, then you can't have laws that say, but women can't do this and that. And that's where they disagreed, because Eleanor Roosevelt, like many of her contemporaries, supported protective legislation. And she really, really opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. I like that those things pop up in the book, because you get that idea sometimes or misconception that everybody gets along. And I think maybe, especially with today's young people, when we hear a lot of derisive stuff about safe spaces and about avoiding anyone on a campus who might disagree with you, the fact that 
two women here who obviously wanted the best for women and were fighting for what they believed in, both very tough in it. You wouldn't call either of them a sellout or anything like that for disagreeing on how to get there, but they were able to have disagreements and conflicts. In fact, there's another one you describe in Alice Paul and the fight for women's rights, and it's how Alice's National Women's Party struggles with including African-American women. Where do they fit in American society at this time, and what does their struggle come up, and where do we fit them, and they want to be part of this too, and that's tough. So I wonder how you confronted your title character's discrimination on that ground and her struggle with this as you wrote the book. Well, I have to say that that's... The one place I was disappointed in Alice Paul, I mean, you know, I think when you write about somebody, it's important to be honest. And, you know, most heroes and heroines have flaws, and that was a flaw. She understood that if she stood up for African-American women, she would alienate many Southern women, certainly not all, but many. I mean, this was especially true in the early part of the 20th century. And most women in her position didn't stand up, but I wished she had, of course, and I was really disappointed. And, uh, and of course, you know, African-American women were extremely disappointed and, and rightfully angry, I'm sure. So, you know, one scene in particular that left an impression on me was this March of 1913. This is when Alice Paul really stirred up the uh, suffrage movement, which which had gotten pretty sleepy and inactive. You know, the great leaders, Susan B. Anthony and and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were dead, and nothing much was happening. And she organized, this young woman organized this fantastic suffrage parade, is what they called it. There were floats and all sorts of things. And a new sorority at Howard University wanted to march. I think there were 22 members. It was a brand new sorority, Delta Sigma Theta, and they wanted to march in that parade. And they wanted to march with the other college women. And Alice Paul, so as not to anger Southern women or have Southern women refuse to join, asked them to march in the back. And I was really disappointed. For one thing, Dean, you know, at that time, very, very few women went to college, period, graduated college. I mean, these women, college women, African-American college women, white college women, they were elite women, all of them. They had achieved a great deal. And so for her to treat those sorority women that way was painful to see. And I felt that I really needed to include that in my book. I didn't want to whitewash it, you know. And isn't it interesting that her justification for leaving them out and literally uh, signing them second-class status in the movement was so similar to Eleanor Roosevelt's on a global scale where she's saying, well, we don't want to offend certain powerful people, so we're just going to leave you out of this. And, you know, in this case, we're going to leave us out of it. She's a, a woman, but she would have no problem. She had the president's ear most of the time anyway. So, you know, this was very interesting to me that here she's going after Eleanor Roosevelt for saying, well, we're going we're gonna to make a compromise mm-hmm. here on our belief and we're going to leave women out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then Alice Paul, it is disappointing that she doesn't see this in herself. The Greeks have a saying that the camel doesn't oh, see its own home. Right. It's well, kind you, of, uh, well, it's kind yeah, of like that. I think she felt conflicted. Uh, not I think. I'm sure she did. Yeah. But well, they both it's did, but that, it's hard. I mean, I think Eleanor Roosevelt's reasoning might have been more complicated. But Alice Paul was a Quaker, and you know, it was no accident that a lot of abolitionists Early abolitionists were Quakers, especially the women. And she said at one point, you know, I'm a Quaker. And, and basically she was saying that she believed in 
in rights for African Americans, but it ended up sounding hollow because of her behavior. And I, I think that she knew it was against the teachings of, of the Quaker faith in some ways. Women do finally win the right to vote in 1920. Alice Paul lives another 57 mm-hmm. years after that into her 90s, right. as you mentioned. So where does her life, though, take her in the immediate aftermath? After that first ballot is cast, uh, Warren G. Harding is the president who wins that year. She has to then go through all of these decades. But I wonder, like, right in the aftermath, a lot of women probably figured, well, it, it's done now. Everything's OK. We have the ballot. And through that, mm-hmm. we can fix everything. And she's kind of saying the work's not done yet. So what does she do after that first election where women have universal well, first suffrage? She, I think she did a lot of fundraising because the National Women's Party owed about $12,000. Uh, but she then she went to two law schools. She figured she would graduate sooner, and she ended up with a law degree. And I think that was partly so she could understand what laws needed to be tackled for women to achieve equal rights. And eventually it helped her to draft the first Equal Rights Amendment. So that was what she was doing initially. And then after that, for a while, she worked on women's rights abroad. She went to Europe for a little while, right before World War II, and even during the start of World War II. That $12,000, by the way, would be about 153000 today. So it's no small amount that's to right. raise that. Yeah, that's right. Especially when the bill comes due, of course, nobody liked to pay it, right? So here they have the vote. I'm sure a lot of women said, oh, well, you know, it's, it's done now. We don't have to – why should we give you anything? You know, it's just, it's just human nature yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think of, right? donations so. started dropping when the war began. And then, you know, the government <laughs> wanted people to buy government bonds. And I think that taxation worked differently. So it was not as beneficial to donate a lot of money to an organization. My uncle, my dad's brother, and his family used to live in Tenafly, New Jersey, a couple of houses away from Elizabeth oh. Cady Stanton. Oh, there wow. Her house is there, historic uh-huh. plaque and everything. Yeah, and uh, the idea that while sitting down to Easter, the Greek Easter, the right Easter, as any Greek person will tell uh-huh. you, Greek Orthodox person, but there I am in the 1970s, right, unbeknownst to me, having a family dinner, and Alice Paul is out there still fighting for equality. Now we have now National Organization for Women. Women are much more of a voice. So what were some of those divides? What did she think as she was watching these young women who were kind of taking the torture? Oh, well, you know, some of them were just a little too out there for her or going in too many different directions. You know, when the Women's Liberation March, you know, spread its goals a little more widely, you know, the tent became bigger. I think she became a bit uncomfortable. But there was an interesting scene, to me, interesting anyway. You know, it was really Alice Paul meeting the younger generation. The Vietnam War was still going on, and so there were a bunch of radical feminists who had come for a demonstration against the Vietnam War. They came to Washington, and and they knew that Alice Paul wrote the Equal Rights Amendment. And they thought, oh, let's go see her. And she was immediately kind of suspicious. She was not the friendliest person, I have a feeling. And asked them if they could identify. She showed them she lived, you know, she, she lived in the National Women's Party headquarters, which changed addresses a number of times for much of her adult life. And so she was living there at the time, and she asked if they could identify portraits, such as a portrait of perhaps Lucretia Moss may have been there, and I think there may have been a bust of Susan B. Anthony. And they couldn't identify 
suffrage leaders of the past, women's rights leaders of the past, and one of them realized that they knew nothing, and it was sort of a shock of recognition to her. She wrote about it afterwards, which I thought was interesting. That's something quizzing them there on this idea, now a third time that I've mentioned, but just picturing it of standing on the shoulders and saying, who came before? It's also something that a history writer like yourself looks at and says, well, if they'd read your book, they maybe would have had some more ideas or at least some curiosity about it. And that, to me, is this idea of an activist being somebody who has a goal in mind and does understand what came before and what they're doing. And you can build upon it too. If you are an activist and you want to learn how to do some of these things, why not go to somebody like Alice Paul, who's done it before and see what they have to teach you? I think you'd learn a lot from her just from reading your book, if you're that age, about being forceful and trying to get your point Well, of view and in across. fact, you know, I think one reviewer said it very well. She said, well, you could see from learning about Alice Paul's life that it's very effective to stick with the message and vary the presentation basically, so people don't get bored. And, you know, she really was a a brilliant strategist. She understood that she had to keep people entertained, keep the idea of the vote and then equal rights fresh. And, of course, she could do that much more easily when she had a big organization behind her, and that was when she was fighting for the vote. She just kept coming up with interesting ideas, sending um, two women across the country in a car collecting signatures for a petition for Congress. You know, this was in 1915. She was unstoppable, really. But, you know, it took her a while, Dean, to understand that not everybody was like that and that not everybody had that singular vision. And, you know, she did sometimes put people off. She, she thought, well, people are not volunteering. When people volunteer for the National Women's Party, she felt they're not doing it for me. They're doing it because they want the vote. And so she thought, I don't need to thank them. But in fact, she learned that she did need to thank them. <laughs> and one, you know, and, and occasionally people would just, you know, after working 10, 12 hours and not getting a thank you, they didn't want to come back. And so somebody alerted her that somebody was about to stalk off a volunteer um, and not come back. And Alice Paul said, I must go down the stairs and thank her. I'm going to go thank her. For what the woman said, you know, what are you going to thank her for? And Alice Paul said, anything. I'll thank her for anything. <laughs> Oh, thank you goes a long way for sure. And anything you're doing, you know, even when you're, even when you're salaried, but much less when you're a volunteer, you, you know, that was a direct line there to somebody I'm sure she admired and respected her work, but you, yeah, everything comes down to personal things and probably, especially for your readers, that's important to learn early. But yes, I think, you know, she's a great model and, and it's wonderful to see that feminism you know, is alive and well, and that many women proudly, young women, identify themselves as feminists. I think that's great. My final question is also the final one you cite in your book that's put to Alice Paul right before that 92nd and final birthday Uh she celebrates. A reporter asked her what third wave she'd launch after the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And I wanted you to talk about that. I didn't mention it earlier about her saying what comes next. What was Alice's response? And what do you hope your conclusion will inspire in your young readers as they look ahead in all endeavors well, of life? Well, she asked the reporter to read the Equal Rights Amendment, which is, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And then she said to the reporter, sounds kind of complete. So, you know, I felt she really lived the way she wanted to live. I hope she died a really peaceful death. 
and she, you know, remains a great inspiration. You know, and I think in some ways we're still trying to achieve equal rights. We don't have equal rights, but we certainly have gone a long way, and, you know, we have more to do. What do you hope the young readers take away from it when they finish that last well, page? Well, you know, I, I hope they think about in what ways is the playing field still not quite level. Well, if you look at the CEOs of big corporations, you know, how many are women? The percentage is still small. Women don't earn as much as men do for the same work. So, you know, certainly there is more to do. And, you know, we still tend to think of childcare as a women's issue and not a family issue. And therefore, women need to have more flexibility rather than parents. So, you know, I think that there's lots to do still. But much has been done. I think Hillary Clinton's achievement just says an awful lot. That was really a big step for women's equality, I I believe. And I feel great about that. Well, Deborah Copps, author of Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights, thank you for sharing this forgotten warrior in the battle for equality with us today. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope that listeners will pick it up and put it in the hands of a young person they know who can benefit from getting a new hero from history. How great is that to be able to give someone the gift of a historical It feels great. And, you know, this has been a good year for Alice Paul. The headquarters of the National Women's Party, the final headquarters, is now called the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument. And it became a national monument um, in the last year of President Obama's presidency. And that was really quite terrific. Fitting time, I guess, for it to happen last year. We had a exactly. first female nominee of a major She's party. She's also going to be so. on the back of a $10 bill, supposedly. I mean, I don't know how definite that is, but I think pretty definite. Not just her, but she actually had a very good year. <laughs> And there's also, I talked about Tenafly there. Speaking of saving historical buildings, there is one there. It was a restaurant. It was a Charlie Brown's when I was growing up, speaking of the Uh 70s, and was for a long time. And it's one of the places where Elizabeth Cady Stanton walked down the street there and cast a ballot, which was a violation of the law. Oh, yeah, that day. uh, was arrested. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, and I mentioned that to you. Yeah, that that was a, that's a big deal. They're Uh trying to save that building. I'm hoping that that building gets saved. So it's really important. I very much uh, want to see plaques on these old buildings so we yeah. can remember. And the next best thing is you see a plaque, you learn a name like Alice Paul, and then hopefully you go pick up your book. And I hope many people. Well, thank will do you that. so much, Dean, for having me. Again, the book is Alice Paul and the Fight for Women's Rights From the Vote to the Equal Rights Amendment. You can find the Amazon link to purchase a copy for the young reader in your life at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate with that Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional cost in your shopping cart. For just a few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Deborah Copps for joining me and for shining the light of liberty on this forgotten leader of the fight for equal rights. Find Deborah online at DebraCopps.com or at the handle Deborah Copps on Twitter. That's D-O-B-O-R-A-H and K-O-P-S. 
And while you're on the computer, why not let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Now you have heard of women's rights And how we've tried to reach new heights If we're all created equal that's us too. With a gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guy.